to the segment of this podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. It is Monday, April 4th. And guess what happened last weekend? Oh, Wolves beat Aston Villa. <laughs> Wolves did beat Aston Villa. Yeah, and our newest hire, Johnny Long, is an Aston Villa fan. And so that brought me great joy. No, last weekend was the Tour of Flanders. It was fantastic racing on Sunday. Two really, really, really good races. And so we're going to... We're going to break it down today, plus some other things we got a bunch to talk about. But before we do, let's say hello to everybody. Ronan, you're just back from Flanders. How are you? How was the trip? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a good weekend. Some great racing, some uh, good tech, which is always a good thing. That's why I went, so it was very worthwhile. Uh, and I am now, by the wonders of modern technology, back home again already. I say already, but I was on the road for about 12 hours today. Ooh, that sounds unfun. And then you made me come straight into work. <laughs> I did do that. You can take tomorrow off or something. Dane, <laughs> did you enjoy the races over the weekend? I did. Yeah, it was great racing over the weekend. <clears throat> Are you sure you're not dying? Sorry. I'm not sure I'm not dying. If, if <laughs> I sound a bit hoarse today, yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I get a little, I don't have COVID. <laughs> I know that. I got something going on. Abby, you're still pregnant. Yeah. Thank you for letting me know. I'd forgotten. I thought I thought you might forget. And so, you know, don't forget. No, there's a big, big, big. 2.3 kilogram baby lying on my lungs at the moment. So it's super fun. That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, before we get into all things Flanders, Dane, let's say I wanted to go to a beautiful national park somewhere within driving distance of me here in, in Durango, Colorado. Where would you suggest that I go? Uh, Kayla, you could go to Greater Zion in Utah. Uh, this week's episode, in fact, is brought to you by Greater Zion, Utah, hosts of the Ironman World Championships on May 7th. In Greater Zion, you can ride the same route where Ironman athletes push their limits with nearly 7,400 feet of climbing over 112 miles. It's one of the toughest cycling courses on the Ironman circuit, and it's just one of the challenges waiting for you in the land of endurance. You plan your rides and the rest of your trip at greaterzion.com. So there's your answer. What an answer that was, Dane. I'm just really impressed you were able to pull that out of nothing. And uh, Yeah, and I just had that ready. I, I don't know why I was ready to go. I was waiting for someone to ask me that question. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you to Greater Zion for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love it there, and it is not that far from me, so maybe I'll do a little, little camping trip up there sometime soon. Now, let's get into the show. Now, Abby made the run sheet this week, as is normal, and so the first thing we're going to talk about, which is the first thing on the run sheet, is the Flanders men and Matthew Vanderpoel. And three moments that mattered. And Tade Pogacar, my man of the match, if we did such things in cycling. Maybe we should do a man of the match in, in cycling, in fact. Where do we even begin with the men's Tour of Flanders on Sunday? I think maybe Pogacar is the place to start because tactically, he was the center of the universe uh, on Sunday. He was, he was the, the person making everything happen. He was the rider that everyone else was watching. He was the rider that all of the other riders' tactics sort of orbited around. So let's start with Pogaccio. Now, none of us picked Tade, I, I don't believe, uh, for our winner. But he Is it was the first time we've all been right. 
that's that's very true. <laughs> but 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 he was he was a, he was a favorite coming in. We all kind of knew what he was capable of doing. We'd seen it at Strada Bianchi. We'd seen it at the Tour de France a couple times. I think we were all kind of assuming that that the lack of experience would be a problem. I guess in the end it kind of was. But Ronan, let's start with you. Were, were you kind of surprised by by the way Pogacar rode? I mean, it's hard to say you're surprised by anything that Pogacar does now because he just does surprising things every time he throws his leg over the saddle. So, you know, in hindsight, no, probably not. But I definitely think it's, you know, the ride that he did to finish fourth, uh, the, the position he achieved in no way sort of uh, demonstrates how impressive that ride was. It was probably one of the most impressive rides we've seen in Flanders in, in recent history. Uh, the, the fact that he only came away with fourth does seem a bit unfair, uh, and I'm sure we'll probably get into how he ended up finishing fourth. Um, but you know, when you when you think about it, really, he has proven time and time again, you know, he can just ride a bike better than pretty much anybody else. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's an alpine climb or a half flat, half uphill time trail or gravel in Strada Bianchi or in now this case cobbles in Flanders. He has the engine to make up for whatever lack of experience he had in Flanders. Uh, and he has obviously also got the intelligence to quickly learn from his slight mistakes in Dwarsdorf Landron and correct them and go into Flanders on Sunday and just, you know, it, yes, he used power to to really rip the field apart, but he also was positioning well. You know, he had, he had I think somebody in commentary said he'd gone from basically from primary school to university in one step. Uh, and it, it seemed like a pretty good analogy to me. I, I think the uh, the nature of the challenges at Flanders is what makes it really impressive to me. It's not just a matter of watts per kilo. I mean, yes, he's got this engine, and we know that, but you can't just have an engine at Flanders. I mean, if you're if you're at the bottom of the Koppenberg looking up, it's a pretty daunting sight. I mean, it, it's I, I feel like it, it's it's kind of scary. Like pe- people ride a bike up that what. Uh, and yeah, people, it, people get off and walk on a regular they, basis. Yeah, they very, very Pro- often. Professional bike riders sort of get off. You know and walk. what? Nah, I'm walking up that thing. Uh, <laughs> there was a really great video. I don't, I don't know if any, everyone saw um, Sarah Poitavin on her Instagram stories. She took a video of the this like tiny little old car that had a couple l- larger humans in it that tried to pass them and go up it. And it ended up being that like all of the Tibco EF Tibco uh, staff had to get out and like push this car up the hill because it couldn't get up the hill. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, it's a monster, and I, and I think you can be, you can have a huge engine, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to thrive on this course at the, at the Tour of Flanders. And and I think the sort of casual brilliance of Tadej Pogacar over, over the past few years, I think might kind of mask just how impressive it is. Uh, you know, over the past decade or so, I, I feel like, uh, you know, when he was at his best, Chris Froome, I think, was head and shoulders above the competition in the Grand Tours. And I feel like there was a stretch there where I, I kind of felt like people downplayed how good he was. I feel like Chris Froome, when he was at his best, was, I mean, he's a generational talent and just so much better than everybody else in the Grand Tours. And even Chris Froome, even even Chris Froome, who is so much better than everybody else at the Tour de France, never would have done something like this. Uh, and and his brilliance was confined, kind of. I mean, if you can say that, to the Grand Tours. Uh, and this is just so different. And and you know, Froome 
as good as he was, this is just so far outside of his wheelhouse. This was not something that he would have ever done. Whereas Tadej Pogacar, as young as he is, he's already won two tours de France, and now he goes and does Tour of Flanders, and it's he's a contender immediately. Uh, and I, I think, I think because of how brilliant he's been, I, that might mask just how wild that is, and how unusual, how hard that is, and how amazing he is. I mean, yeah, you have to go back thirty plus years, I think, to find anybody even remotely similar. I mean, we're talking, we're talking Bernardi No and Eddie Merckx as the last riders to do things like this. There are some exceptions. I mean, Vincenzo Nibali was was never afraid to, to you know, give it a shot in in a one day. Uh, he he quite famously had that phenomenal ride in the 2014 Tour de France over the cobbles that that sort of led to his eventual victory or was part of his eventual victory. So like another really classy, very talented, very skillful rider in Nibali. But but he won. Nibali was never the the dominant Grand Tour contender that that Pogacar is, right? He's 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 stolen, not stolen. He snagged a few uh, a few GC wins here and there, obviously, but he, he you know he didn't show up at the Tour de France as the odds-on favorite ever, and that's one ma- big major difference. The second thing is he he never really did this either. Like he would line he's lined up at a bunch of one days. He's won a fair number of of obviously like major one day races, monuments, but he's never bossed a Tour of Flanders like. Well, like a rider who was was designed and built for it. I mean, I'm Pogacar approached that race like like a Watt van Aert would or like a Matthew Vanderpool would, where I'm going to grab this race by the scruff of the neck. I'm going to hit three cobble sectors in a row. It was the Quermont, Paderberg, and then the Koppenberg that essentially he blew the race apart. And I am going to do this. We haven't seen that. Yeah, we haven't seen that since since Eno and Merckx. Like, I remember like Lance Armstrong lined up. I think he was the last reigning Tour de France champion to line up at Flanders. If I, if I remember correctly, someone correct me on that stat if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he lined up and you know, he, he raced like he was in the front group for a while. He made some moves. There's, there's, there's photos of him off the front, uh, but he didn't win (laughs) and he didn't come in fourth. And, and frankly, like he didn't really factor once the, once the real classic stars started to, to punch, and so even Armstrong, by far the most dominant of his era, is is not in Tadej Pogacar land. It's it's pretty stunning, actually. I don't want to lead us down a complete rabbit hole, but I've been thinking about this the last 24 hours. And so many times when we see cobbles or gravel or some other uh, new theme thrown into a Grand Tour stage, we get riders complaining about the inclusion of cobbles or gravel in a Grand Tour stage. And and my thought on that is always just, you know, the best writers are able to handle that sort of thing. And is there anything you could put into the Tour de France at the moment that Pogaccia would be afraid of? I think the answer is no. And that, you know, that that is that to me was a a, a big just a realization that, you know, in terms of we've got all our writers who can climb well or can time trial well or can descend well or can ride gravel or can ride cobbles, but he can just do absolutely everything doesn't matter doesn't matter what he, he lines up for we probably have to consider him a favorite now going forward and i'm interested to see won't be this year obviously but will he eventually tackle paris roubaix even it seems ridiculous to think that he might even consider it but surely he must yeah i mean roubaix and flanders are are, are different yeah um, yeah yeah I, I think that yes you, you couldn't really throw anything into the tour that would scare him more 
that it would scare others, right? So even, even if he's scared of the cobble stage of the Tour de France, he's less scared than Nairo Quintana. Uh, mm-hmm. I think what I mean is we'll never hear him, we'll, we'll never hear Pogaccia complaining about the inclusion of anything in no. the race. He'll see it as an opportunity. I think that that has a lot to do with his personality. I don't think it's so much the, oh, these young guys coming up, they're, they are so much more fearless than the old generation or he's comparing him to Chris Froome, for example, I don't really see as a very um, like productive use of time. I think they're two totally different riders. And right now we're just really lucky to be living in a time covering, covering cycling in a time where there's this young kid who has a lot of different skills and just like really loves to ride his bike. And I think that that's why he went into those three cobble sectors first or, you know, ready to fight, fight for a position and fight for a result is because he just really loves to race his bike. So he wouldn't have come at the race in any other way. I don't see him ever coming into Flanders and taking a back seat and just kind of gliding his way to the finish. He came to this race and he was like, if I'm here, I'm fighting for the win. And he rode that way. Uh, Ronan, you sort of posited, you know, is there anything you could add to the Tour de France that would, that he, he wouldn't be, you know, in, in, in love with. And I think there is one thing and maybe this could be a, a, a way to segue, but the, the one thing that I think made this race so interesting is that he's not a great sprinter and he knows that he has to try to drop somebody who's faster than him in a sprint, Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, and the fact that Pogacar is not a great sprinter, he's not a bad sprinter, you know, as grand tour contenders go, he's, he's pretty good at it, but as Flanders contenders go, he's not a great sprinter. And that means he's got to attack on the Cormont and the Paderberg. Uh, that means he's he has to uh, animate the race because he needs to get rid of Matthew Vanderpool. And he almost did. I mean, there was a point where it seemed like Vanderpool was was going to lose ground and then that might be it. Uh, but but he didn't. And, and that made the race pretty interesting. The fact that he kind of had to do that and then couldn't do that. And in the end, as great as Pogacar is, he didn't win. And he wasn't. I mean, he wasn't really that close to winning in the very end. He was, he was close to winning 20K to go. But then in the, fin- in the finishing straight, it was, it was clear that he wasn't going to win when, when he didn't finish second or third even uh, because Matthew Vanderpool is a much better sprinter. Pogacar's tactical uh, knowledge in the sprints was just not quite as good as the rest of the, of the uh, skill set required for that race. Let's talk about Vanderpool. I mean, he did win the race. <laughs> it, it feels weird to have him overshadowed. That that rarely happens, right? But he kind of was. He was over I mean, fr- from a, you know, through through 99% of that bike race, Pogacar was the far more interesting character, I think. But Matthew Vanderpool knows how to win Flanders. Uh, and and he, first of all, I think he's going to win Roubaix. Uh, he, you know, FMSR is your first race. And he's like coming into form for Flanders. He didn't look, he didn't look his sort of dominant self, but maybe that was just because trying to hang on to Pogacar is basically impossible sometimes. Didn't look his dominant self at Flanders, was hanging on, like you referred to, Dane. I mean, particularly that last trip up the Paderberg. It's it's hard to tell whether it was sort of like a, a line choice error or or a, a brief moment of I don't know what it was, but he was gapped, right? It was there was three quarters of a bike length between him and Pogacar the last time up to Paderberg, which is really the last opportunity for Pogacar to get rid of him. And he fought back. We haven't seen that kind of rolled shoulders, 
you know, rocking hips, every single muscle fiber of Matthew Vanderpool's being trying to make Watts into the pedals. We haven't seen that from him all that often, uh, but we saw it in for about 10 or 15 seconds there. And it was a moment where he could have lost Flanders, right? That, that was, that was for him. That was the, that was the key moment. If he, if he stung, if he hung onto the wheel, he was probably going to win. If he lost the wheel, which he did momentarily, he was not going to win. There was just no way he's going to catch Pogacar over the top. You turn left at the top of the Paderberg. It's a pretty rapid, narrow descent. Pogacar's a good descender. And then it's a, a, what, 11K of flat into a headwind, into the finish. So the stronger of the two riders is probably just going to ride away with that. And Pogacar probably would have won the Tour of Flanders. So for me, Vanderpool won to see weakness was was interesting. To see him fight through weakness was really interesting. And then to see him play the finale, which I think we can get into so perfectly, was interesting because you know he he he's a rider who has tended to be able to kind of just win via dominance, right? Win in kind of the same way that Pagacha was trying to win. Like, yes, he wins some sprints, but it was quite often he just sort of obliterates everybody right whereas he was the second strongest in that bike race and yet he came away with a victory anyway which in itself is is kind of impressive uh i want to like i, I kind of have a i have issue with saying he's second strongest and i think he he might say that same thing he might agree with that even he did he uh, did say that yeah but i think <laughs> you have to like on the champs elysees uh at the tour de france we don't say that the sprinter who wins is the second strongest rider in the bike race to Tade Bogacar who wins the Tour de France, right? Uh, at the Tour of Flanders, you know, sprinting, the strength of your sprint is important in this situation. And Pogacar did not have that. Uh, and Vanderpool did. And I think Vanderpool's sprint, it's been kind of hard to judge over his career. It's not like Wad van Aert where he's won numerous bunch sprints. Uh, Vanderpool, I feel like people talk about how fast he is and we don't have that much evidence of his, you know, of his finishing speed. Uh, and he's he's been beaten by Casper Asgreen in a sprint. So going into that finale, it was kind of there was this question of is is Vanderpool going to lose a sprint to somebody who he probably should beat again? Because I, I wasn't I wasn't uh, certain. Yeah, it wasn't guaranteed. And the fact that he won that sprint, I mean, it might seem obvious, but I feel like it, he needed to do that to kind of confirm that, okay, he actually, he's pretty fast in a, in a sprint. But I don't think it was so much that Vanderpool was a better sprinter than Tade Pogacar. I think it was coming into the finish. They were looking at each other and the the moment when they were caught by Maduas and and uh, Dylan Van Barl, like that was just a really crappy position for Pogacar to be in where he got boxed in between those two. And so I don't think it's an accurate representation of Pogacar's sprint to like kind of, it, it, it wasn't a fair, um, it was fair. Like it's all, it's bike racing, but it wasn't like the two of them sprinting against each other. Matthew Vanderpool had a, just had a better sprint. I mean, he launched his sprint super early in order to not get passed by those two guys that were coming with a lot more speed. So the fact that he was able to ramp up his sprint from going a lot slower than them to be able to hold them off, I think is a really good indication that Vanderpool has a pretty good sprint. And I mean, you kind of have to, to be as good at cyclocross as he is at the same time. Yeah. I feel like both can be true. 
I feel like P- Pogacar really did not sprint well. That was a that was just you know tactically for an, a bunch of different reasons that you that you just said. The sprint did not go his way, uh, and he wasn't going to be contending. At the same time, I think Vanderpool also put, uh, put his speed on display, and I think even even if Pogacar had sprinted from a better position, I I don't think he would have won. So I think both are true in that Pogacar really messed it up, but also I think Vanderpool beats him most situations there. Most of the talk has been about Bogatia's tactics and and poor choice of tactics in the in the finale. But I think we do have to say, given how much we've spoken in the past about Vanderpool's poor tactics, especially in Roubaix and Flanders last year, I think Vanderpool put on a tactical masterclass yesterday, right from the second that Bogatia was ready to make the attack, ready to blow the race apart, and ready to go on the offensive. Uh, Vanderpool was willing to let him do so. Was willing to let him burn as many matches as he was willing to do so, and was quite happy to to sit behind. Whereas in the, in the past, we've seen Vanderpool make those moves. Vanderpool do all the riding, and then Vanderpool get beat in the finale. We've seen him come in third from three in in Roubaix, which was a surprise. We've seen him come in two from from or second from two in Flanders last year, and I think he just got it perfectly this year. Like, and you know, at at the same time. I don't really know what else Pogaccia could have done. Yes, and and Kitty, your article was was you know summed it up perfectly. The the sort of tactical errors he made in the sprint, but up until that point, I'm not sure really what else Pogaccia could have done. He tried to drop him in the Quaremont, not easy to drop Vanderpool. He tried to drop him in the Paderberg, nearly got there, but it just wasn't quite long enough. And once he's in that position, then you know there there was a lot of talk about how Pogaccia let. Madua and Van Barla come back into the race and, and take those podium spots. But, you know, I, th- I think had a, had Vanderpool not been beaten by Asgreen last year, the doubt wouldn't have been there about Vanderpool's sprint and Pogaccia might have settled for the podium. But Pogaccia's coming into that final kilometre saying this guy can be beat in the final kilometre of Flanders by a rider who normally wouldn't beat him in the sprint. And and I think, you know, that he, he had to play it the way he did. He had to risk everything for Flanders to or for Vanderpool to effectively, you know, jump too soon or make a tactical error himself, and then Pogaccia could could profit from that. But the only mistake that I really thought he he made in the finale was, you know, he he got on the wrong side, um, and you know he he put himself in a position where he could get boxed in. But I think the bigger problem was he was slightly overgeared, and in my opinion, he looked like when he tried to kick, he just couldn't, he didn't have the snap, and that's what led him into the position where he you know got boxed in. Couldn't react to Vanderpool's speed and eventually came home fourth. And as I said right at the top of the show, like it, it's a result that really doesn't do any justice for how good his performance was. Yeah, I mean, Vanderpool himself said that he deserved to be on the podium. Which, if I was Madawes or, or Dylan Van Barla, I'd be like, "Hey, Screw you! <laughs> 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 uh, we 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 worked our butts off in the last ten k to catch you guys and and get on that podium." But yeah, he did. He made some. He made some. Well, Robbie McEwen called them was it schoolboy errors or junior errors or something like that he was talking with dan benson over at vela news uh obviously knows his sprinting uh, and well, i was and surprised I, by McEwen's comments though because I, I i didn't get to hear them but from what i've heard it he, he effectively was suggesting that pogaccia should have ruled for second which coming from McEwen, who is a sprinter Seems quite surprising to me. Like well, sprinters don't know how to ride for second; they only ride for the win. They either win or they crash trying quite often. So it seemed quite I, I strange. To I don't me. know if that's. I don't know if that's what he was suggesting. Because like, I genuinely do think if you're in Pogacar's position, and we're getting into kind of like like 
tactical nuance here. And let's be clear, nobody on this podcast has uh, sprinted for a victory at the Tour of Flanders. And so, yeah, <laughs> take that take that with a grain of salt. But you know, if if you are if you are coming into a sprint, and I, and I mentioned this in the sort of like analysis piece that we read over the weekend, if you're coming into a sprint and you're the you're the lesser sprinter, you know the the, the when in doubt, lead it out. Like that that actually can be good advice sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes because at the very least, you've got a bike length at that point, right? Your front wheel is one bike length in front of their front wheel, which means that at that point, at two hundred meters to go or whatever, you at least are winning. Whereas if you are the second sprinter. Like he's never going to come around Vanderpool, probably, unless Vanderpool goes way early, fades, or cramps as soon as he stands up. Which I guess are both possibilities. But if I'm if I'm Pogacar in that instance, I'm looking behind me. I'm seeing those two riders come up really fast. I'm kind of with with McEwen here, which is that like you you have to salvage something, and I don't think it's a it's an I don't think it's going to damage his chances all that much to hit the front and put in an extra 30 seconds of, of pull and then try to sprint. And in fact, if I'm Pogacar and I've been watching Vanderpool dangle off my rear wheel, basically every time I go really hard for the last 50 K, I think coming into that sprint, like fatigued as possible is probably in his, in his favor. Right. So I do think I, he made a, He made a number of errors. He, I think he should just let it out. I think he should have, you know, put his head down, at least tried. <laughs> uh, and like I said, in that, in that piece over the weekend, and like you just mentioned, Ronan, he was on the wrong side of him. So, so, you know, when the wind is from the left, you ride against the right hand barriers. Uh, so that the only way that, uh, uh, somebody you're sprinting against can come around you is to your left, which means they have to come into the wind. That's exactly what Vanderpool did. Great tactically on his, on his part. Uh, but then Pogacar stuck himself to the right of Vanderpool in between him and the barriers. And then as soon as they got swamped, there was absolutely nowhere for him to go. Uh, in fact, Matawas even slid by further on the right and further boxed him in at that point because Vanderpool started to shift left after he had, after he had kicked off his sprint for about 50 yards. So yeah, just to, just to, unfortunately for Pogacar, a, a comedy of errors uh, in the sprint there. And he was really angry about it. I mean, this is a rider who we have not seen get frustrated. heated all that often. Frustrated. Uh, I mean, no, he was, he said I, he was not angry for, I was, he said in a, he said frustrated, not angry. That that's <laughs> six of one hat doesn't the other, I think, uh, <laughs> You know, he 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 flew by the media area. He didn't really want to talk to anybody. He, you know, he was that dude was pissed. I don't care what he said. He, he was not he was not stoked about what had just happened. And we don't see that from him very often, which shows one, he really cared, which I love because he really cared about this bike race. And it would be easy for a rider like that to be like, I'm a Tour de France champion. I'm just here to like show what I can do. And I didn't win. And I'm just going to win the tour in July anyway. But he really, really cared about about that finale, which is really cool. And two, I think he's going to come back and and give it another go. And and frankly, he'll win it. Like he will win the Tour of Flanders at some point over the next couple of years because he showed on three different climbs that he was the strongest rider in that bike race. I think he was also frustrated at himself for for those couple of mistakes that he made in the sprint. I think you know he is an intelligent bike rider, and he had already worked out what he had done wrong. And yes. He was maybe in the heat of the moment, annoyed with Van Barla for you know 
what he probably thought blocking him in. But I think when he watches that replay back, he'll realize that there wasn't really much wrong. Van Varda didn't really do much wrong. But I definitely think he, you know, he he'll be back at this race hopefully next year to try and give it another crack. And to uh, that's something to look forward to. I think. <laughs> Should we? Um, I feel like you know, we've talked to Vanderpool. Oh. Uh, no, I Go feel ahead. like we haven't talked Vanderpool enough because I think like in all of this talking about Pogacar versus Vanderpool, it's easy to forget that Vanderpool was off the bike for a lot of the winter and literally just came back from injury. Like he, his first race back was Milan San Remo, which was not that long ago at all. And seeing as it's Vanderpool, we can, it, yeah, we forget that this result is pretty freaking impressive for someone who was just seriously injured and had to basically come back from scratch. And I think it's super interesting to look at how he came back and the way that he was able to, um, there's an article on Bello news about his comeback and, and how he, what he focused on in order to get to this point. And he did a ton of off the bike work in the gym and really focused on building his muscles and where his power was coming from. And he came, I think it's safe to say he came back a lot stronger than he was a year ago, which is like incredibly terrifying for the future, seeing as he's only going to build on this form. Like the whole, I absolutely hate it. I hate it when people do really well in a race and then everyone's like, Oh, what about the yellow Jersey? What about, what about the tour de France for Vanderpool? But it's like, uh, honestly, not that out of the question for him to do incredible things like that in the future. I feel like given the fact that he, he really only came back to riding six weeks ago, get more or less. Well, that's why I was saying at the start that I think, I think he's going to win Roubaix. Like he's not peaked yet. There's no way he's peaked yet. He just started racing three weeks ago. He's going to win Roubaix. I'm calling it. I'm calling it right now. It's probably wrong. But Uh, is he going to win Amstel in between? Actually, actually, Stefan Kung is going to win Roubaix. We we we'll get in. We're we're well. Those first of all, early picks for yeah for 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 our listeners out there. Just so you know, because some may have not picked up on this, Roubaix isn't next weekend. This is very annoying. Uh, You can thank the French election system or something like that. Basically there's a, there's an election in that region on the Sunday as an American, uh, an election on a weekend sounds like a great idea. I don't know why we can't do that, but anyway, (laughs) there's an election on, uh, on Roubaix day. And so they've moved Roubaix an extra week. And so next weekend is Amstel and then Perry Roubaix the weekend after. Now I personally find this very annoying because it's the reason why I wasn't at Flanders this weekend, because uh, I can't be gone for two and a half weeks oh, with a one-year-old. I will come back. I will come back. I will come back. A single on, man. Uh, on, the, on the opposite, though, <laughs> it, it actually works quite well for me because I can go to Flanders. I can come home. Yeah, see it's great for you, my family, and then go back out again. I prefer. But it. I just always personally enjoyed that trip. But like, go to go to Flanders, ride bikes, drink a bunch of beer, do some work during the week, go to Roubaix at the end, go home. And now it's too, it's too long. You're really gaining a lot of sympathy from the listeners right now. I, I can feel the sympathy coming through their headphones. They're like, oh man, Kaylee, his whole spring was just ruined. I feel like the French department that did their election should, should, should have considered anyway, Kaylee's spring Belgium trip well before, <laughs> before scheduling their election. It's not that much to ask. But I don't Do think. we even, do we even have to like get into the fact that the top quick step rider to finish was as green 
in like 23rd, a minute and seven seconds down. I mean, we should mention that they have just been quite quiet. This classic. Well, let, let's mention two things related to that. One, yes, Quick Step was very quiet. They, I mean, so Asgreen looked good. He was the one who followed Pogacar up the Quermont when, when Pogacar first went, like the first real effort. He was right there. Uh, there's that, there's that gif uh, that we stuck in the story over the weekend, that an analysis story of the weekend of the, the two of them flying by an earlier breakaway going like twice as fast as any of the guys in that, in that move. Uh, Johnny actually talked to, I think it was Connor Swift. One of the Swifts, I think it was Connor Swift who said it was just crazy watching those two ride past. So Askreen was on, I think decent form. Then he had a mechanical. Was it on the Koppenberg? It was either Where the was Koppenberg it? or the Pattersburg. I can't remember exactly, but I think it might've been, it was coming over the Koppenberg, yeah. Top of the Koppenberg's like after the steep part's over, I think. Yeah, he was trying to yeah, f- like over that the switch to the big ring, wasn't he? <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, he had a mechanical, and I think without that, he, you know, he's probably on course for a top 10, top five finish. At that point in the race, a mechanical where you're standing on the side of the road for that long, not a good, not a good thing. The other interesting, interesting thing to me was like Steve R rode past him, a bunch of team other teammates rode past him. Nobody stopped. So like Quick Step wasn't they did they like a double all take in for Asgreen. They like they like like Stebar like looked. He's like, "Oh, that Ooh. looks bad." And then he just kept riding. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really strange to me because if they were all in for Asgreen, then then you know, that's a they would have stopped because you know, you put you put three or four riders around and maybe he has a chance of getting back into the front group. If Stebar keeps riding, he has no chance of getting in the front group, right? This is a weird weird tactical thing for me too. I don't think they know how to do all in for one because they usually have so many numbers. They're just always playing the numbers games in in, yeah. in these races. But yeah, that, that got, I'm half joking because obviously Steve Barr knows that he wasn't on the farm to do anything yesterday. And he knows when his team leader is stood by the side of the road, what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and that is, <laughs> that is help him. <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And then the other, obviously the other team that didn't have such a good day was Yumbo Visma. Um, crash early for Laporte, uh, and Benute tried a couple little things, but never really did much. And I, I mean, clearly, you know, Johnny wrote a story last week. How do you fill the, the wout shaped hole and that team? And, uh, the answer is you don't. Um, and I think that the sort of the interesting thing about that is it's, it's a quick step like situation, right? Where, you know, when Nikki Terpstra won Roubaix, it was mostly because Boonin was around, right? That that team has had the ability to essentially propel second and third in line into victories because they had some some very dominant rider. And all spring, Yumbo Visma has had kind of the same thing, right? You've had Laporte and Benute be very active and really sort of impact races. But largely, I think what we found out on flat, uh, on on Sunday was because Wout was there and that really affected the rest of the peloton and what they did in reaction to other Yumbo riders and without Wout there they really yeah they had some bad luck but they they really from the second Pogacar put the put the power down in the Quermont they were gone right they were they were no longer a factor and that was 55k out so not a not a good day for them either is this their worst spring ever quick step or Yumbo it's Yumbo's best spring ever Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. If you go back to Rabobank days, there might have been a better... Hmm. Let's, not, let's not go back to those <laughs> days. <laughs> uh, 
my one of my friends, Nick, just texted me a Johan Bernil tweet, which is savage. It's a oh. savage Johan Bernil tweet. Did the team of Vodders start the season yet? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Alberto Betiol was a DNF, former Flanders champion. They had a pretty rough. I mean, there was a lot of teams that had a pretty rough day on Sunday. Uh, you know what? One team that didn't. I think EF. FTG. EF. Sorry. I was going to transition into talking about the, 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 I don't know, the team award uh, with two riders in the top five. But what were you going to say about EF, Abby? Oh, I was just going to say that their top finisher was uh, Michael Valgren, 36th. Not great. Yeah. But anyway, FTG was, was great. And not, not just, um, I know that they're not the same team really at all, but in women's race as well, maybe that's a good place to transition. Uh, they, they did, they had a great race in the, in the women's race, two different programs with the same sponsor, (laughs) but (laughs) we're 44 minutes in here. We should, we should get onto the women's store of Flanders. The, um, yeah, I mean, Brody Chapman had a phenomenal, phenomenal day. It was a super tactical race. SD Works did what they, what we've been kind of waiting for them to do all spring, right, Evie? I mean, yeah, c- considering the FDJ had three in the top 10 at, in the women's race, uh, they still wouldn't have taken home the team prize because SD Works, fin- SD Works finished with three in the top five, <laughs> and the other two in the top five was Movistar. So a very interesting, if you are just looking at the results, it's kind of an interesting breakdown with like three, it's only four teams in the top 10 and, on, and only one Canyon Stram rider and the rest are FDJ, Movistar, and SD Works. So Trek Segafredo, who really had... Uh, talked a big game coming into the race with Balsamo was nowhere to be seen in the final 35 kilometers of the race. But SD Works had an incredible day. I mean, they had the numbers the entire day and every single move that went, they had the numbers. They had multiple options with Marlon Rusa up the road with uh, Brody Chapman, which was, it was just an incredible day for Brody. Um, and and Lotta Kopecky in the, in the end, Lota Kopecky versus Annemiek Van Vluten was a really interesting sprint. I think um, Chantal Vandenbroek-Black, Dane and I had a conversation about why I didn't put her in my <laughs> riders to watch. And I I did feel a little bit silly watching the race when she attacked with like 12K to go and looked like she was going to ride away. And a year ago, two years ago, she would have ridden away for the win, but the depth in the women's peloton is really growing right now. And you can see that in the fact that Movistar had two in the top five and uh, and FDJ had three in the top 10. It's not just X- SD Works anymore. So the whole race was really exciting. We had a hundred almost 100 kilometers of TV to watch, which is the most we've ever got to see of this race. And it was exciting from the entire time. And Lota Kopecky, her win was, I mean, there was really nothing I think that Van Vluten could have done to beat Kopecky. There was no way that she was going to out sprint her and Kopecky still had the upper hand with Chantal leading into the final. So it was an interesting finish, but Kopecky was so just so emotional, like so beside herself. And I think that says a lot about how much this win means for her being the Belgian national champion and winning and how the crowd reacted to her and everything. It was, it was an incredible day. Two things. One, the, the Flanders classics, which is the organization behind 
the Tour of Flanders and a bunch of other races this spring. They have a, a an initiative called Close the Gap, I believe, um, where they they appear to be like truly sitting down and thinking about the best way to grow women's racing. And I think that that was on display on Sunday. Abby, I'd be interested to hear if you agree on this, but like the timing, the timing of the race finishes, the timing of the, of the broadcast, like when things were happening. I mean, basically they, they timed it such that you could watch the beginning of the women's race as the men's race is finishing, but really you could watch the men's race. And then the, basically as soon as the men's race finished, they switched over I was watching on GCN. They switched over to the women's race and it was like right at the perfect moment for that race to, to, you know, they had to do a little bit of like, okay, well, this is what's happened so far, but pretty much the race was about to kick off. So it felt to me like Flanders classics and whoever's doing the broadcasting has really like stopped to think about the timing of these things and making the whole day an event. Right. And it didn't feel to me like it has at other races, like the women's race was just like tacked onto the side right it felt like the whole thing was was designed to sort of like build to a crescendo across the entire day and i thought that that was really 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 well done and essentially that flanders classics like deserves some kudos and some credit for kind of figuring out the best way to do this yeah i agree 100% i mean flanders classics has always put a lot of thought and effort into their women's events even before there was live coverage of them even before there was all of this growth happening on the women's side of the sport and every year they've stepped it up and this year even more so. And I mean, we mentioned it in a much earlier episode, but they had equal prize money as well for this race, which is huge. And the podium celebrations were together, which is something that they have done for quite a long time. Gracie Elvin said on freewheeling, she, when she was on the podium of Flanders, it was also at the same time as the men's, but the the crowd's reaction to Capecchi getting up on the podium versus Vanderpool. I mean, Vanderpool's a big name in Belgium. He has a lot of fans, but people were still more excited to see Capecchi up there, which is just incredible. And and yeah, they did they did such a good job. This is I think the third year in a row that they've had Flanders finish after the men, and it just means that all of those fans are on the side of the road, and it is. They are like single-handedly, not single-handedly, but they are they are really helping the sport grow. And they're doing this for Flanders. They did particularly well this year, but they're doing this for all of their events. And they want in the future to have every single Flanders Classics men's event to have a women's event as well. And it's, I, I honestly cannot say enough good things about Flanders Classics. We had Jose Bain on the sort of roadside at Flanders as well. She's doing some work for us and some work for SRAM and some others. Um, and she was saying that, that the, like the Claremont was still absolutely hopping when the women came through. And that, I think that's, that's a perfect example of like, they put the thought into it. How do we, how do we arrange these things so that we get the sort of maximum impact for every race that we're putting on? And yeah, just, just a huge amount of credit to them for, for actually thinking about it, which like, like I said, this this is the difference. There's there's there are organizers out there, start with A and end with O, uh, that don't seem to f- to fully. I know Dane. Dane, can you figure it who out? Could can you, you figure possibly out which one I'm talking be about? talking? Who, who could I be talking about? Give us a hint to the middle letter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there are organizers out there that uh, 
yeah, they just, they just, they don't get the details right. Right. Like even if they make the big effort, the details matter. They really matter. And, and Flanders got them, got them right. I need to break in here with a small amount of breaking news because my friends are texting me things at the moment. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the, the other one, the other one that I just got from my friend Owen is a picture of Tare Pogacar at the Aremberg with two emojis. He's got like the chin scratching emoji and the like sort of grimacing emoji. <laughs> I would honestly be surprised to see him actually race Paris-Roubaix. I feel like recon makes total sense given that it's part of the Tour de France this year, but, and he's like there already, but I would be, I would be really shocked. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to take this conversation too, too far off the, off the rails here, but I think he's probably just doing Tour de France recon and he, and he's a, he's a 20, three-year-old meme lord and he's messing with us he's trolling all of us right now <laughs> i can i can confirm he is definitely riding roubaix because about 20 months ago i said he is definitely not riding roubaix so <laughs> that means he will ride it i mean it wouldn't surprise me but i i i think he's trolling us right now we'll, we'll find out we got we got two weeks uh anyway i just wanted to drop in with that little bit of breaking news back to tour flanders so my woman of the match, which I, yeah, I think we should just start doing this because it's a fun, it's a fun way to sort of talk about the rider who had the greatest impact. My woman of the match is Chantal Vandenbroek Black because, you know, Abby, you put together a sort of analysis piece after that race. Uh, and the moment that stood out to me reading through that and also watching the race, the moment that stood out to me as the one that truly defined the way that this race finished was the moment that Vandenbroek Black attacked up the left-hand side and re-split the field, right? And essentially took it from a group of, what was it, six or seven at that point? Six, even yeah. Six to back down to three, right? And and really gave SD Works the numbers that they needed to make that happen. Got rid of Arlena Sierra, who was sort of a, a, a well, a worry from a sprint perspective. And, and you know, that, that, was, that was the decision the individual tactical decision that won them the race i think so she's she's my woman of the match for that reason because it was it was just a, a moment of tactical brilliance it really was i think there were a few years there where anna vonnebrega was so good that sd works they had the numbers they had the team strength and they could have maybe put their st- team strength on display but there were times when it just kind of wasn't necessary I mean, there were times when Anna van der Breggen was so good the past few years where that sort of thing has not been required. Uh, I think it's kind of nice to see SD work kind of figuring it out, figuring out the the uh, way to leverage those numbers again and putting Kopecky in a position to win on the strength of the whole team. Uh, and, and I think it's clear that they can do that. Uh, it's taken them a little while maybe, uh, but... I think they're they're going to be continuing to do that kind of moving forward. And they they definitely have the numbers in the depth in that team. What's interesting is that they really got it wrong tactically in the last couple races, which is not something we see from SD Works at all. But they came back to this race and they went above and beyond. And they said before the race that they they needed firepower to be able to beat Balsamo and um, Annemiek Van Vluten. And in the end, Trek didn't even factor in the race at all. And they they definitely put 
Kopecky in the ideal position to be able to beat Van Vluten. It would have been a freak incident <laughs> if if Van Vluten had won out of that group of three. It would have been weird. What happened to Trek? What 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 happened I'll, to Balsamo? I'll take a blame for that one because I yeah, said Elle Van Dyke was going to go for a long range attack, and she clearly <laughs> heard that and went far too early. I meant like from like half an hour out from the finish or something. I didn't mean it was sixty k to go. You didn't mean sixty k to go. <laughs> no. <laughs> On the on the Valkenberg, yeah, I think I think Trek um, Gracie said it best on freewheeling, but they they just tactically their best bet was with Balsamo, and they didn't ride for her. They tried to play the numbers game like SD works, but they simply don't have the numbers right now. And so, what they would have been better served to do would have been to have the entire team around Eliza Balsamo, and every time she got dropped, have Ellen Van Dyke weld her back onto the group, and they didn't do that. And I said, even if they had done that, I don't, I don't see her being able to contend with Kopecky on the Paderberg at the end, given that Kopecky is just climbing way better than her other sprinter counterparts at the moment, but they just tactically, they didn't have a great day, which is fine. They won the last three world tour races (laughs) there. They can have a bad day. But I would do think that, you know, when you think just after the Paderberg, that group that came together before Chantal Van Rootbleck made that attack, Balsamo likely could have made it into that group or at least, you know, a, a group very close behind that. And had she had a couple of teammates around her, it certainly could have been a different story in, in the finale there. Like we had the three riders ride clear, but if you have two or three track riders with Balsamo in the chasing group, you know, suddenly Chantel van der Black probably doesn't even get away and, and we have an entirely different finale. So I think what basically what I'm saying is I think you're right, had they ridden differently <laughs> and supported Balsamo, not even like to bring her back after getting dropped because, you know, I don't think she would have got dropped all that often just to help with positioning and closing gaps and that should should they open. Um, but yeah, didn't happen. I think even if she'd had teammates around her for that final 13 kilometer stretch she still wouldn't have factored in the finale it's not enough road for them to catch her and is she just like off the back of her peak now like is she just i don't think so i think that she's very very good at winning reduced bunch sprints and this is not a race especially with the koppenberg thrown in there that was ever going to favor a rider like her which again speaks to the depth of the women's peloton growing and the fact that we have this emergence of more sprinter type riders that can't even at her, even when she was sprinting her fastest, Amy Peters was still a factor in Flanders, you know? And so it's just a complete, we're like in this new era of women's cycling. That's really, really exciting. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think the Koppenberg had a dramatic effect. A really dramatic. Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's it is a hard. Yeah, I mean, you guys have most of you, I think, have ridden it at some point. It is like it's gnarly. I mean, the, the Paderberg compared to the Koppenberg is over before you you even know it. Right, is so much easier than the Koppenberg. Quermont, yeah, kind of similar. The Quermont's really hard because it's going to draggy into it and draggy out of it, and like the whole ten minutes around it is really hard. The Koppenberg, as a solo effort is is 
absolutely brutal. And yeah, not not too surprising to me that that single inclusion would have a pretty dramatic impact on the ability of any sprinter to to truly make it to to the finish line. Kopecky obviously accepted. She's like Matthew Vanderpool, though. For those who haven't ridden the Koppenberg, I I have ridden it at least a couple of times. And I walked up it last Thursday with a broken leg as quickly as I rid up it on a bike. <laughs> That's how steep it is. <laughs> it's gnarly. Yeah, I've probably, I've probably ridden it, I don't know, 20, 30 times because every time we go there, we just go do loops on it. And it's like every time I'm like, every I get to the top every single time and I'm like, I'm never doing it again. I'm, <laughs> I'm never riding that heinous. Because you. it's one of those things where it's so bumpy. And it's so steep that you have absolutely no choice but to go way faster than you actually want to if you want to keep moving. And so you get to the top completely obliterated every single time. I can't even imagine racing up the thing. I think I would just get halfway up and I'd be like those old photos of the dudes just walking up the side. That would be me. Okay. I'm now out. moving us along mostly because we've been talking for an hour. Oh, thanks, Abby. Well, as always, if you want an even deeper dive on the women's race, head over to head over to freewheeling, Abby. Uh, pretty good episode this week. I give it like a nine out of 10. You haven't listened to it yet. No, I haven't at all, but I'm just assuming that it's fantastic. (laughs) Head on over there. If you want an even deeper dive on women's race and it's about time for us to wrap up. We got a couple little news items yet to cover. We'll get through these quick one. Uh, we got skeletal press this weekend. So like I said earlier, normally we'd be Flanders, skeletal press, Roubaix the following weekend. It's going to be Flanders, skeletal press, Amstel, which I'm very annoyed by. But anyway, we got Skelter Press this, this Wednesday, which is a it's a fun race. It's it's uh it's not particularly prestigious, tends to be for the sprinters, does have some cobbles. Um it's a ridiculously yeah. dangerous, stupid sprint finish race that should yes. not exist. Yes, it is a crash fest. It's they a put crash the fest. finish lane like straight after a corner. It's just <laughs> like ah. Uh, and it'll never change because that's partly what makes it the race it is. But I just every year I watch it through my fingers basically because I'm afraid there's going to be just a mass pileup. <laughs> my my primary memory from Skelter Press is the last year that that Bonin was racing and it, it they took it through like his his hometown or something and Boom. went past his sister's hairdresser shop thing. Anyway, there were booning faces all over the place. It was great. It was a, it was a party. But that's my that's my that's my primary memory from Skelter Press. Not the racing itself, which does not tend to be, other than dangerous, does not tend to be particularly exciting. Still worth watching. Uh, it's a good kind of like midweek. A lot of a lot of riders will sort of recover up until that point. Do Skelter Press kind of half gas, uh, and then normally race Roubaix the following weekend. So I'm I'm not exactly sure how that's going to affect. Well, the the move of the movement of Roubaix, I'm not really sure how that affects how racers will adjust this this year, but we'll see. Other things coming up. Amstel Gold on Sunday, always a good one. And as of right now, Primus Roglic, uh, as of when we're recording this, Primus Roglic has just won the first stage of the Italian Basque Country. So if you're looking for, oh my God, no way, some stage racing me? action, you can get that too all week. Uh, with Roglic, Evanapool, Gary Thomas is there, Adam Yates is there. Quite a few big stage racing names at the moment in the Basque Country. Primoz loves that race. He absolutely loves it. It's the well, half- You see, if Pogaccia was anything like Sean Kelly, he would have went straight from Flanders 
to do Basque Country and then do Roubaix next weekend. I know we can't do it next weekend, but I'm just saying, you know, what's he doing checking out Arenberg when he could be racing in Basque Country? Soft. Such a softy. Other news, last two little things here. Uh, some great news for our Aussie listeners and anybody who likes, you know, a little early season bike racing. The Tour Down Under will be fully back in 2023. That was announced this week. We're very excited about that. Obviously, uh, it's a good excuse for for some of us non-Aussies to get down and visit our colleagues. And it's just a great week of racing. Absolutely love it. Uh, even though it's usually like 44 degrees Celsius and kind of miserable in January. But maybe it'll be beautiful next year as a welcome back. It has been before. Very excited about that one. And then finally, <clears throat> a brief Sonny Cabrelli update. Uh, he is back in Italy and had a, what's the exa- what's the medical term? Anyone have it handy? He had basically a sort of pacemaker thing installed uh subcutaneously under his skin and uh that should allow him to continue racing we think um i think there's some still obviously there's there's still sort of tbd what exactly happens here but i think it's the same thing you know we mentioned christian erickson the 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 football soccer player i think it's the same thing he got implanted um and he was he's only allowed to play in like certain leagues like some leagues don't allow it for I'm not entirely clear why I don't think there's any such rules in cycling. And so I think if, if Cabrelli, if his doctors say that he is fit to return, then he is fit to return and, and we should see him back racing, which would, which is exactly what we, we all hope for. So good news about Sonny Cabrelli. Uh, I mean, not great news that he had to get this thing implanted, but if it's a solution, then it's a solution. And, and we just thank modern medicine and hopefully see him back in the bike races. So last but not least, Obviously, James isn't here. Um, he's like, I think he's helping his wife do the Grand Traverse this weekend, which is oh, like cool. super cool. Yeah, it's like 45 miles and 10,000 feet. of it's, it's a ski mountaineering thing. It's really cool. Anyway, I think that's what he's doing, <laughs> doing at the moment. Uh, obviously, Ronan was on the ground in Flanders doing tech stuff. Not, not really anything for us to talk about on this podcast, and we've already gone a bit long. So head on over to cyclingtips.com. Is it a good website, Abby? What a great a website. Good? Thank it's you. Ex- it's Thank an you. exceptional <laughs> website. <laughs> it's an exceptional website. Head on over to cyclingtips.com uh, and check out the tech stories that Ronan wrote over the weekend. We've got a big gallery from the start of Flanders. We've got a bit of analysis on uh, Matthew Vanderpool's Strava power numbers, which are out of this world, 285 Watts for six and a half hours, but a bunch of like five minute efforts over 500 Watts. What? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, go check that out. It's completely insane. Uh, And that's it for us this week. We'll be back next Monday chatting about Amstel and looking ahead to Perry Roubaix. Thanks for listening, everybody. Oh, and double thank you for everybody who reached out uh, after a little tribute to Richard Moore last week. I really do appreciate it. Uh, Thank you to everybody. So that's it. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.